the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Lee Johnson and Dr. Jason Reed. And today we are talking about the stories we tell. But before we do that, as usual, we need to get some drink orders and find out what you all are ranting or raving about. Lee, let me start with you. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I am going to have a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. It's that time of the year. My two favorite flavory beers are Summer Ale and Oktoberfest. So I'm glad to see this one come back around. And today I am raving about the human Google. So it turns out this service has been around for a while, but I only just recently found out. But the New York Public Library has a service that they call the Human Google, where you can basically just call up the library with any question and a real human will research it and get back to you. So I know it's kind of crazy. And you can imagine how useful this would be when you're trying to find something that is hard to put in the exact language that Google will recognize for its searching. Engine. But anyway, if you're interested in availing yourself of this service, the number is 917-ASK-NYPL, and you can get your own human Google. It's great that they're keeping it, because my friend John Pachet, shout out, is a librarian in Cleveland Heights, and they were getting rid of that service. Uh. And that included getting rid of an entire – sometimes if the person thought the question might come up again – they would write it down on a little note card and file it. Oh. They call these Ready Reference. And he used to run a, a website called the Ghosts of Ready Reference where he'd put some of the funniest ones he found, like little factoids he found when they were dismantling it in Cleveland Heights, at least. Huh. Wow. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? I'm just going to have an apple cider, seasonal as well. And I am ranting about Amazon. <laughs> The service, not the river. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking hate that river. (laughs) There are so many reasons to rant about Amazon. And this one isn't as up there with its labor issues and everything else. But I found out only recently, maybe everyone else knew this, that they got rid of their look inside books function a while ago. And I used to rely on that. I've been trying to buy less and less from Amazon, but I would always look at books on Amazon and kind of do the reverse of what some people do when they go into bookshops where they walk or browse and then order stuff on Amazon. I would check stuff out on Amazon and then buy it from someplace (laughs) else. But I would use that for putting together syllabi and everything else. I mean, it was a great way to get a look at a book Yeah, and they're phasing it out. Alas. That's terrible. That's the enchitification of the internet right there. Yes. <laughs> Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? Today I'm going to have a white lady and I am ranting about the former governor of Indiana and former president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels. <laughs> Mitch Daniels wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, basically arguing it's time we finally get rid of tenure. I'm willing to hear an argument about that, but his reason is because we learned from business that you have to be nimble and you have to move fast. 
And the weight around the university's necks are tenured faculty, which don't allow them to be nimble or move fast. Turns out about a third of all faculty in the country are tenured. And (laughs) it turns out also they only account for about 35% of university budgets. And it also turns out Mitch Daniels forgot the end of the phrase, move fast. The end of that is, and break things. (laughs) So thanks, Mitch Daniels. You're the Ron DeSantis of the week. (laughs) Jason, today I know we're talking about the stories we tell. Tell us a story about that. Sure. So we live in an era that can be said to be documented more than is narrated. First, on the most immediate level, every event from mundane to world-shattering is photographed, live-streamed, or tweeted, producing a real-time account of events all over the world. Second, there's no shortage of documentaries or docudramas. Every crime, scandal, or disaster seems to get its own series or podcast recounting the events that have happened. However, the same period has also been marked by a decline in stories about itself, of works of fiction or film. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say that we do not really have a story that could be said to be about the Gulf War, the 2008 crash, the Trump presidency, or COVID. There have been a few films about the first few on that list, but COVID generally shows up in film and movies only in the behind-the-scenes photographs which show the crew wearing N95 masks filming unmasked actors. It appears the closer we get to the present, the harder it is to come up with convincing stories about the present. One could also argue that these events seem to be already written. The shutdowns of COVID seem to imitate every movie about plagues and social breakdown. Maybe we already made a COVID movie years before it happened. In a similar manner, you often hear that we are past the age of satire. Trump seems to make all satires of the stupidity and brutality of politics from being there to idiocracy toothless and redundant. Are we past the point of fiction? Jason, in your introduction, you lay out this contrast between documenting and telling stories. And I think I know what documentaries are for, but what are stories for? I'm taking a cue in some sense from Aristotle and Aristotle's line that poetry is something more scientific and serious than history because poetry tends to give general truths while history gives particular facts, right? That when you give a history of something, it's enough to just simply say that something has happened and that's taken as explanation enough. When you're telling a story, you in some sense have to make it more convincing and you have to engage beyond simply recounting And in narrating, you get at more of the causes and relations underlying things. So without narration, we don't have a broader understanding beyond there's just some shit that happened. Another element of Aristotle's argument is that poetry, and I think he has in mind here primarily tragedy and maybe secondarily comedy, and then other forms of poetry after that— They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They have a plot. And what I see different between telling a story and making a documentary is the plot sort of works through something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just say, as you said, here's the facts, just one damn thing after another. But because it has a plot and things happen and characters do things and they relate to one another, there's also a kind of working through. Mm -hmm. And so if I see a documentary about COVID, 
Then I learn where it started, how it first came into the U.S., and what the CDC's response was, and so on. But none of that helps me work through having to sit in my house for three years, <laughs> seeing only my mom and her husband, and worrying every time I went to the grocery store. I mean, I need to work that shit through, and no documentary is ever going to help me do that. I think that's a great way to put it. And I also think part of the working through can also be understood as an attempt to come to some general understanding of what all this stuff meant. Mm. I mean, to me, it seems like part of the reticence to make a film about the invasion of Iraq is that it would mean taking a stance about what that all was for, mm. right? And there have been attempts, sort of, but they're kind of movies about it peripherally. But it seems like part of the unwillingness to make a story about it is you have to end somewhere and say something about it beyond this is just a bunch of shit that happened, which I feel like to some extent the documentary can get away with. Yeah. I'm wondering if it might be helpful for us to throw out a few examples of films that have been made that we think did this well. So I was thinking in advance of our conversation today that the Big Short, which was about the 2008 mm. financial crisis, mm -hmm. was a really good film. And it was a really good story about that event. Do you guys have something in mind, you know, that you're thinking, this is what we're missing? I mean, even if it's going as far back as, uh, what was the Heart of Darkness movie, you know, the... Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, yeah. Yeah. Well, Apocalypse Now was one that came to my mind immediately, and it's interesting how far after the Vietnam War that film was made. Mm. I think also the TV series MASH is another example. Everyone argues that it actually wasn't about the Korean War, even though it was set in the Korean War, that it was actually about the Vietnam War. But I think that's another example. It was a story about something that had a plot, or in the case of the series, you know, a whole bunch of plots, but did really allow the viewer to work through some things and work some things out. I mean, when you're watching characters undergo these things, you see what they meant. I saw a documentary about the Vietnam War, and I don't get the same response to it. I don't see what the significance of these various events were and what they mean. So I would go with Apocalypse Now and also with MASH. Those are two really good examples. I would go with They Live about the Reagan era. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what John Carpenter said, too. I mean, he was once asked, would you make a sequel to They Live? And he's like, why would I? It's about the Reagan era, and the Reagan era never ended. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. But there is a kind of flip side about this. I think that, you know, maybe 15 years ago, if you had proposed a movie, the plot of which was Donald Trump deciding to run for president mm -hmm. and then winning the nomination and then actually being elected and then everything that followed from that, I think you'd be laughed out of Hollywood because people would say this is a ridiculous story and it has no relation to reality at all. And yet it happened. Well, there was that one Black Mirror episode, the Waldo moment, mm -hmm. that many people now retrospectively say was prescient in that mm. it did sort of put up this cartoony character who was running for office and mimicked in many ways the shock value of Trump. But since then, nothing really. And I have a feeling it's going to be a long time before we could tell a story about the so-called Trump era. Sadly, it's not over yet. 
but mm-hmm. even still, I mean, is too soon fitting here? I think it is a little too <laughs> soon. And, you know, we're still licking our wounds and trying to heal from our trauma. So what do you think the failure is? Is it a failure of imagination? I know sometimes we say truth is stranger than fiction. It's kind of like, could we write a story that's, you know, any better than what actually happened? Yeah, I think it's a failure of the imagination. I also think it's a failure of an attempt to be willing to say what this all meant. It's important to point out that when we're not talking about a story that everyone would look at it and agree definitively that's what this thing was about. These things are, I think, by definition, contested. Right. And everything we would point to as the film about something. I mean, we you know, we did our episode about Casablanca. We talked about that in terms of the U.S.'s involvement in World War II. I mean, every one of these interpretations or understandings of something telling the story of something takes a stake on it. And I think partly it's a failure of the imagination but also an unwillingness to say what these things are ultimately about and engage in the sort of contestation over the interpretation of these events. Yeah, I think this point that you both are making about having to, well, as you just said, say what it's about, what it meant, reminds me again of Aristotle's discussion of tragedy in the poetics, where he argues that tragedies have to be familiar. We have to be able to recognize ourselves in them. And so if we don't know where we stand, right, if we don't have some kind of an understanding of the event anyway, then there is no audience that's going to be able to recognize itself in the story. We can recognize ourselves in the documenting of it because we were there. We, we, you know, we saw it, but it's hard to recognize ourselves allegorically, right, or figuratively. Yeah. What I like about that emphasis on recognizing oneself is that the other point of Aristotle's analysis of tragedy is that we work through emotions, and famously for tragedy, it's pity and fear. Mm -hmm. But I would never have fear for someone undergoing some tragic event if in some sense I couldn't put myself in their shoes. Right. And so I do need this identification, but I do like Aristotle's notion that these dramas are working something out. And if I'm afraid, then a documentary is only going to exacerbate my fear. It's not going to help me work it out. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important element of stories is this identification that allows me to be able to start working something out. Stories have, by definition, an end. And I think one of the things about a lot of these events we're talking about now is they have a way of never really ending. Like the invasion of Iraq lasted for years and years, eventually sort of petered out as an occupation. The Trump era is outlasting, you know, the first term and may even outlast Trump himself in some strange way. And same with COVID, it hasn't really come to an end. It's come to a moment of forgetting and repressing. Part of the other difficulty of narrating an event is, as we were saying, it has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. And we seem to be more or less caught in these events that have very long tails to them. I mean, I would even say, you know, people have debated this to what extent the 2008 crash has its own lingering effects into the present. It's not like the Vietnam War, which you could say it has a drawn out beginning, but then a definite end to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I might disagree a little bit that there was a lingering end about how we dealt with the aftermath of that. And I think the treatment of veterans from that war was something that took a little while to work out. And then I think it was another few years before we started working out the incredible racism involved in our military that went over and fought that war. But I agree, it, it had a definite end and we kind of were able to work it out. I wonder, and this goes back to your question, Lee, is it a failure of imagination? I wonder on which side, if it is a failure of imagination, is the failure? Is it a failure of the creator to be able to imagine? Or could it be that we as a society are no longer able to imagine so that we're no longer interested in stories anymore or less interested? Or less interested in these particular kinds of stories. Because sorry to keep going back to Aristotle, but tragedies were avenues for moral and civic education. And, you know, never to pass up a chance to blame neoliberalism for yet another thing. There is a kind of neoliberal sensibility now where everyone are these individual agents and there isn't our story, you know, our lesson. We don't have as robust a sense of the civic space or the moral space and ourselves as Mm -hmm. agents in that space together where, you know, a lesson would have to be one that everyone could recognize themselves in, even if they disagreed. So, Yeah, I mean, I do think that the failure of the imagination is really on both sides, both the creators and the audience. But I'm not sure that the lack of imagination is not still the same lack Mm. of imagination. Yeah, I could see that. So if I am unable, because of neoliberalism, to work out a common moral or civic problem, or at the risk of sounding so old-fashioned, play out the importance of a civic or a moral virtue that is necessary at a given time to solve a given problem. If I can't imagine it, then I'm not willing to see it, but even less am I able to produce it. So Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think it's the same failure, and it prevents both the production of it and the reception of it. Mm. Although I guess we should also talk about the other side of this, the sort of glut of documentation. Right. I mean, the fact that we had two documentaries about the fire festival, that's a bit much. <laughs> Which never even happened. <laughs> and I, of course, I mean, part of me says, you know, I'll be kind of vulgar materialist about it. Documentaries are cheaper to produce on some level mm. than narrative stories. And so streaming services sort of fill themselves up with these. But I do think there is a sense in which, and I see this maybe with younger generations, people are just like, uninterested in narrative and they get what they need from watching true crime or true scandal or various forms of documentation of events rather than narration of events. So do you think that's because there's a resistance to having one's story told by someone else? You know, that we sort of need firsthand accounts. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. But I also think part of it goes back to the sense that if something is presented as true, that's all you need to convince people that it's worth following Mm. versus if you narrate it, then you have to do something else, right? I remember reading somewhere when the Coen brothers made Fargo, which begins with the line, this is a true story. It's not. Right. Totally made up story. Mm -hmm. And in some interview, they said, why did they do that? They said, well, 
we just thought some of the stuff, and this is going to be hard for people to accept it being plausible. So we just said, throw in the true story thing. People believe anything after they see that. <laughs> and to some extent, that's partly what people seem to be convinced by. If you just say this is a true story, people are like, oh, it must have happened. Like reality TV is very scripted, very engineered, very edited. It is, in some sense, a creative enterprise, but it's able to get away with so much more because people believe that it, in some sense, really happened. Mm. I want to be clear, in worrying about the lack of narration, I do not mean to denigrate the creativity that goes into making documentaries, and there are some really great documentaries, but in a world where there are only documentaries, what are we missing? What are we losing out on? So I don't want to put down documentaries and documentary filmmakers, I do maybe want to put down reality TV and reality TV makers, except for Below Deck. That's a different topic. But there is an interesting thing you also point out, Jason, namely that what we take as reality television is constructed in such a way that the producers give an episode a plot or give the entire season a plot. And so even the producers of reality TV feel the need for some kind of narration, even while they're presenting this as we're just cameras watching what happens, just recording what happens and throwing it back at you. Yeah, but there's such a limited number of those plots, and they're all the same across every (laughs) reality television show, you know. (laughs) Can I just say one thing, too, about our sort of presumption that there aren't as many of these stories being told because there is a genre of B-movies, religious movies, really. Mm. And there's a lot of Mm. them being made that are doing the thing that we're talking about. There was just recently, I wish I could have, I should have looked up the name of this movie, but there was just recently a movie in the theaters and there was all this brouhaha about it because it was loosely based on the conspiracy theory about massive child trafficking. Oh, Sound of Freedom. (laughs) Yes. And it seems like there are a lot of those movies Mm. and those are exactly the kinds of narrative accounts of important civic and moral matters that we're looking for. But the audience is a very limited audience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes not there at all, because apparently Sound of Freedom got its box office by like groups buying out entire theaters. Yeah, yeah. No one showing up. But anyways. So having not seen the movie, as surprising as that might be to you, (laughs) I don't really know the answer to this. But I wonder if that movie is not more in the vein of a docudrama. Mm. In other words, that it's dramatizing something that actually happened or that it is claiming actually happened and not like Apocalypse Now or, you know, some of the other examples we've been talking about telling a story that has characters that have their own interests and maybe this didn't really happen in this way, but somehow in presenting this through a narrative, you can get to the truth in ways that are better than if you simply documented them. I also didn't see the movie, but I'm not entirely convinced by the docudrama tag for a movie like that, because I think that they are exactly what you just described. They're fictional characters about fictional events that are trying to get at a truth of something which possibly because it isn't real they can't document or hasn't been documented (laughs) yeah i mean one of the interesting things about that movie is i read an article about how people 
inspired by that movie were volunteering with anti-trafficking groups. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anti-trafficking groups, one of the things apparently they deal with the reality is that most people are trafficked by someone they know. Right. Not the cabal. <laughs> the, yeah, the QAnon kind of story has like these random people grabbing kids off the street and so on. And so you had people who had seen the movie showing up at their volunteer orientation and arguing with people who've been working in anti-trafficking for years about what the nature of trafficking is because the Mm. fiction was so much more compelling than the reality. Yeah. Again, since I haven't seen the movie and I don't think I will see the movie, this is not the hill I want to die on. Right. But I do think there is an important difference to be made between a dramatization of real events like that movie that was about Flight 99, was it? 93. Like the movie about Flight 93, which was an attempt at a dramatization of events that actually happened. That's closer to documentation than it is to narrative. Ugh, that makes me think I'm going to have to withdraw my The Big Short nomination because I'm not sure on your description that that isn't what The Big Short was as well. Although, I mean, I'll argue in favor of The Big Short because I can't believe that everyone involved in that event, namely the shorting that went on, were as funny as the characters in the movie. <laughs> like, I don't think people experiencing that thought that this was a comedy. Whereas the movie is quite funny and intentionally so and is meant to be a comedy. And so I think it is an attempt at working through the meaning of these events. And it chooses to do so by making it a comedy, which I think is a really interesting choice. And therefore, I don't think it's just a docudrama. I think it's more of, like you were saying, The Sound of Freedom might be a narrative that takes something that is purported to have happened and puts different characters in it and they have different problems and work out different issues. I would say it's just like that. Yeah, although I think the thing we're struggling with at some point, the Aristotelian opposition between poetry and history begins to get very broken down and very gray between, on the one hand, the scripting of reality TV. Hmm. And the other thing worth talking about is how much some of these supposed documentaries rely on reenactments to provide visual narration of things that no cameras were present for. Right. And then on the flip side of things, there's the sort of docudrama version. And at some point, poetry and history touch or kind of get so thoroughly intertwined, it's hard to make that Aristotelian divide. You know, Aristotle didn't have reality TV to contend with <laughs> when he was coming up with that statement, or docudramas, or reenactments, and so on, all the various ways in which the document is narrated or the narration is documented. Yeah, I can imagine Aristotle probably thought of tragedies that they, you know, stopped being nice and started getting real. (laughs) Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. 
Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. So I started with the claim that we have not narrated our current historical moment. But I think that really raises another question about to what extent can something be said to be about something or its moment. You know, it's often been said that Godzilla was about the horrors of the atomic bomb, Dawn of the Dead about rampaging consumerism, and that Aliens was an allegory for Vietnam. Because I do think it's possible to say that in the period we're dealing with, which kind of seems to start around 2001-ish about – Fiction moved more away from reality, right? It's it's the era of the Marvel movies and so on. But even those movies, you know, what is the Avengers about but about trying to prevent a disaster happening at a large skyscraper in Manhattan? Mm. You know, and it borrows that image and it borrows more than that. If you remember, if you've seen the movie recently, there's a whole scene at the end where there are – lamp posts with missing people posted to them you know because yeah. the avengers didn't save everyone apparently some people got killed in the battle for manhattan it uses the imagery of post 9-11 and one could make the argument that it's probably as close to a 9-11 movie as people could stomach at that time mm. i just taught jameson's essay reification utopia right it has a utopian wish in it what if this didn't happen what if we could prevent this from having happened in some sense you could argue that a lot of these movies that are not about reality a lot of them hover around preventing or reacting to a massive tragedy and they seem to be their own after image of 9-11 and deal with it by sort of not dealing with it it's the allegory question right to what extent can we talk about things being about something even if they're not narrating that event as we recognize it So what do you think about this genre of films that tell stories having tweaked one significant historical event? So I'm thinking of the most recent HBO series where the Russians made it to the moon first. I can't remember the name of the series. For All Mankind. Right, For All Mankind. It seems like there's a lot of these. Mm -hmm. Would you call those allegorical? I think that For All Mankind is really interesting in that by tweaking this one moment, namely the Russians got to the moon first, they then played out all of the implications of that that allowed me to see things about the so-called space race that I didn't see before. Mm. I mean, one thing, and this I did see before, but I think the series does it nicely. By having the Russians go first, space becomes militarized really quickly. And it allows you to see that the Soviet Union and the United States at the time were not going to the moon for the love of science and to figure out something about gravity. 
they were going there to see whether we could set up military bases and fire on one another and how to shoot nukes through space. Mm-hmm. And I think by tweaking that in an interesting way, it takes us out of the actual reality that allows us to reflect on that reality. Mm-hmm. One thing we didn't talk about in relation to Aristotle is that for him, all art is an imitation. And when you think about imitation, he has to not mean it's an exact copy. Right. He has to mean that it repeats it, but with enough distance that allows one to reflect on it. And I think For All Mankind does that really well. The problem I have with some of the examples that you raised, Jason, is that I could see reading these films in that way, mm-hmm. but I'm not convinced that everyone who was in the theater watching them were working through, either consciously or unconsciously, the events that they're supposed to be allegories of. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we don't want to do the sort of like Zizek thing where if you've read enough philosophy, you can make any dumb thing sound smarter than it actually is. (laughs) But there's claims you don't want to make, but there are claims that seem hard not to make. As Daniel Hassler Forrest pointed out in his book, Capitalist Superheroes, about superhero films, is that like, it's undeniable that in the post-2000 Batman films, Christopher Nolan films, the tragedy of Batman losing his parents is way more highlighted. It's not just backstory. It's the core of his identity. Mm. And here's, I think, a good cultural barometer. Remakes and retellings do, in some sense, show to what extent there's been a shift in some understanding of something. And I think the fact that in the Tim Burton Batman movies of the 80s and 90s, the tragic dimension was not as important as it was in the 2000s. Batman movies. And so I have to think not everyone's going to make the connection, you know, big building in Manhattan, 9-11, but the sensibility of overcoming tragedy is something that is foregrounded in the later versions. It's not in the earlier retelling, not to mention the Adam West one. I mean, does that, does that Batman even mention that he's an orphan? It seems like he's no. too like chipper and <laughs> and busy doing the Batuzi to like even get into his trauma. <laughs> All right, steady on, Jason. You're taking down my favorite Batman. I think we did have a period about ten years ago maybe 15 years ago, where we were getting a lot of good films that were both allegorical and of the moment and had some civic or moral lesson to them. And I'm talking about the many films that were basically dealing with some version of AI. You know, so Her Mm. is one of my favorites, but there are a lot of these. I mean, you know... Robots and aliens are the way that we tell stories, or we have been telling stories for the last 30 years. But I do think that this is one example of where we have been quite successful telling stories instead of documenting things, partially because we can't really document what we don't know, or at least what we don't understand. But when we talk about events like 9-11, like the Gulf War, and I know I've mentioned before GameStop, which has also two documentaries, but no real (laughs) narrative story about it. It seems like we're just not as good with those. So why do you think we've been so successful with the kind of tech near future? When I think about her, clearly, on the one hand, it is a story about 
AI and personal assistance as the AI becomes more sophisticated and that then we could have AI romantic partners and so on. On the other hand, in perhaps a larger sense, it was dealing with the loneliness that comes with technological society in which we found ourselves at the time and continue to find ourselves. Mm -hmm. Someone just recently was pointing out how 20 years ago when you got on the subway, you'd look around and everyone had their nose in a book. And now you look around and everyone has their nose in their phones and everyone has headphones on. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I feel like Her was a film that was trying to work out the intense loneliness that perhaps we don't even recognize we have on the basis of this culture that we're living in. I completely agree. Those stories were stories about both AI and an increasingly technological world, but they were fundamentally stories about what it means to be a human yeah. and what it means to participate in human society and I think we could say the same thing. I mean, now I'm switching from robots back to aliens, but I think that we could say the same thing about the Jordan Peele film Nope, right? Yeah. I mean, it's an alien, but it's telling us a story about our relationship to others, to nature, to animals, to other humans. So, yeah, I mean, I think that we do do this quite well with good allegorical skills. And also mm -hmm. these are very of the moment films. Yeah. And I think similar arguments were made about Westerns, that Westerns were the way we used to tell stories to work through our involvement in various wars, initially probably World War II, and then eventually Vietnam. To my mind, the original Magnificent Seven comes into play as a film quintessentially about Vietnam and trying to work through that. But in that sense, not about Vietnam as the event or the war, but about the culture that brought that to us. Mm. How did we produce that? How did we get involved in that? How did we make a world in which something like Vietnam happens? I think The Magnificent Seven is dealing with all of that in the same way that her is not just dealing with AI, but as you say, what kind of humanity are we now? What does it mean to be human? Has that changed? Should it change? And I think her leaves all that open, right? It's a mm -hmm. sort of contestation, and it doesn't come down on any one side really firmly. Yeah, I would say the same thing about Ex Machina. I think mm. that a lot of people saw that as a very dystopic film, because of the ending, but it really does end with this, where do we go now? They're out here among us now. Right. <laughs> Arguably, you could say the same thing about Nope, even. And the ending of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, where they eventually arrive on Earth. Spoiler alert, by the way, but <laughs> it's been 12 years or something. <laughs> but they arrive on Earth at an earlier point in the current human evolution, and they are both robots and non-robots. And it really does pose the question about what it does it mean to be human. Mm. But can I go back to my point that I raised? Because I'm just not sure what to do about it. Namely that allegories, I feel like if they're too far away from what they're allegorizing, it becomes more difficult for me to call them an allegory. Mm -hmm. And so, Jason, in your list, aliens seems kind of far away from Vietnam, although there are Marines in it and so on. 
Dawn of the Dead, about the rampage of consumerism. I mean, I can see it, and I could see that as a reading, but I'm not sure that that means that the audience that is experiencing it is working out those emotions and those Mm -hmm. events and the meaning of that. Yeah, well, I guess partly, I mean, to sort of push it back a little on this, I think there are things for which we need the allegorical buffer. Right. Mm. There are a lot of movies Mm. that deal with a kind of contagion other than the movie Contagion. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best COVID movie ever. (laughs) I remember reading that people were watching that when COVID started. I was like, why would you watch that? And how it might be more useful to kind of have a little bit of a buffer, some allegorical or fantastic dimension. Like, I think about this in terms of Breaking Bad, because Breaking Bad, to some extent, is about a guy who's trying to be good enough at his job that he can take care of his family. Mm -hmm. But it has all this element, of course, of the drug trade, which makes it more melodramatic, and he doesn't just deal with his competition, he kills his competition. If you took away the... I don't want to say fantasy, but it's not the real world that most of us know of, of a drug trade from that show. It made it about a guy who's just trying to really be good enough at his job that he can take care of his family and not worry about money anymore. It would probably have way less of an audience than it actually did. Mm. And the displacement into this non-recognized world of drug dealers and Mexican cartels and so on. I mean, it's real, but it's used as a buffer is the only word I can think of it from the reality of the anxieties it presents. Right? The working through needs, a, I think, a minimal amount of fictional distance in order for it to be bearable for a lot of people. I mean, some people maybe want the real, like they just want the event as is, but for some people it needs some distance in order for it to be entertainment, in order for it to be watchable. I agree with that. I think that's what I liked about the series Station Mm, Eleven was that there was enough of the fantastical in it to give you some headspace to work through the pandemic and the post-pandemic part of it. So I want to float this theory. It's not even a theory. It's just an idea. just literally just had. But I wonder if it's the case that after that late 90s, early 2000s period when Everything was about the anti-hero. Dexter, The Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Jack Bauer from 24. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember 24. Yeah. That after that period where we all became so enamored with the anti-hero, there sort of wasn't anywhere to go from there, right? We're not going to go back mm-hmm. to heroes. Or if we go back to heroes, they're going to be so complicated that we can't just call them heroes. But people were becoming a bit exhausted by the anti-heroes. So what happened, it seems, is that it was just, well, let's just go back to reality. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's really interesting, Lee, because I was thinking about a moment in, well, it comes up both in Adorno's and Horkheimer's culture industry, but also in Adorno's aesthetics, where he talks about the monotony that capitalism necessarily brings about, first, because if value is related to time, then everything has to be on the clock, and that spreads throughout all of our life, and then life becomes monotonous. And then what's the next step? We start looking for adventure. Mm. So the anti-hero could be this search for adventure among this monotony. And if you look at Tony Soprano, like, 
in, in many ways, The Sopranos is about the emptiness of suburban life and being a middle-class family in a suburb, living in a McMansion with boring neighbors. And even in certain ways, they're in a strip club, but all of them are bored by it. Uh, there's nothing exciting. And yet then the anti-hero is a bit of adventure. And Adorno makes the point that it's only a matter of time before the adventure itself becomes boring. Right. And mm. then what do we do? I wonder, are we at the moment when the adventure has become boring? Yeah, it's like the curse of season four. Like, <laughs> do we keep the series going? Or, <laughs> or if you're the Simpsons season 30. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jason, I really like this idea of allegory as a buffer. And this is one of Aristotle's insights, namely that in order to get at the truth, sometimes you have to tell a lie. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm making this up right now off the top of my head. <laughs> But let's say that the actual working through of COVID would require the working through of exactly what Lee said earlier, the lack of a space in which we can have moral discussions, the space in which we have civic issues that we're pursuing in common. COVID enters into that and just exacerbates that tragic situation mm -hmm. to the nth degree. In order to get at that truth, I might not even use a disease, a contagious disease. I'm not imaginative enough to know how I would, at that point, allegorize what I called earlier lie in order to expose that truth. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is one of the sadnesses of the loss of narrative, is that we don't have images I'll use that instead of lies, these images that are closer to the truth than reality television mm -hmm. could ever be or a documentary could ever be. Yeah. I remember during the early months of COVID, I was watching the series, The Plot Against America, the adaptation of the novel that David Simon did. And there's an episode where not to get too much into this, where there's a family, it's because there's this whole program to move Jewish families into rural America, to make them real Americans. Mm. And one of the families calls to the family in New Jersey, their parent is missing and they're all alone. And it's a kid calling this adult parent. And I remember that hit me because one of my biggest concerns in the early months, weeks of COVID, or when airlines weren't flying and so on, was like, what if something should happen to someone in my family? Like, how would I yeah. get to, like, my... The realization that the world that I had, had counted on, a world where there's, like, flights and travel and all this sort of stuff wasn't there. And so it was this picture of 1930s sort of fascist America that they eventually decide that episode to drive all the way to Tennessee to like help this kid out. Mm -hmm. And it's a big endeavor. And it's scary because there's the Klan everywhere and everything else. It was in some sense truer to how I felt at that moment than contagion would have been mm. or something else. Mm. Because I think the other mm -hmm. thing about the lack of ending is the one thing that no story about social breakdown in a plague or whatever has really picked up on is how boring it is mm. and how you're really caught in this weird moment between thinking things are going to go back to normal and waiting for that and trying to wrestle with, well, what is the new reality going to be? Mm. And that way, I think, and there's a reason why I think this book sold really well during the years of COVID, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower is really good about that. Because the whole beginning of the novel, when they're still in the compound, is this really struggle, like, should we think that we can continue living like this? 
And the young girl, whose name I forget, the hero of the novel, is like, no, we have to begin to prepare. We have to think about what's going to happen after this collapses. And that weird indecision of, should I count on things going back to normal, or should I try to figure out what the new normal is, was for me, like, one of the main experiences of COVID. And the kind of, it's the experience to me, not just of COVID, experience of trouble, it's the experience of the present to me, wondering to what extent the past is really gone and to what extent one can continue to do things as if the past or some version of it is coming back. I want to defend a little bit the audience that does like reality television. I am among that audience and (laughs) really does like the turn to documentation. I mean, I still agree with you both that I wish there were more narrative accounts of some of these things. But we can see that romance with documenting reality as symptomatic of all of these things that we are unable to tell imaginative stories about. And in many ways, for the last, you know, maybe since 2001, we've been afraid. And so Mm -hmm. we watch true crime drama. And we've been lonely. So we watch The Bachelor. We've been wanting to be seen. So we watch America's Got Talent. We don't like our coworkers, so we watch Below Deck or, you know, any other number of reality shows. Mm -hmm. So there is something symptomatic about our condition that we are getting a cathartic moment when we watch reality television. What it doesn't have, which Aristotle's tragedy does have, is the lesson, right? Right. It doesn't have the what it meant part Mm -hmm. of it. And that's a lack that I think we're all trying to search for here. But it's not strange to me that we've made this turn to documentary television. And I think there are a lot of things about it that is cathartic and is symptomatic of our current conditions. And maybe just our imagination hasn't caught up with our affects yet. I wonder, is it actually cathartic? So if I'm lonely, I watch The Bachelor or even Below Deck because I think that at some point two people are going to hook up or whatever. (laughs) Is that necessarily helping me work through the emotion I'm having of, in this case, let's say loneliness? Or is it the case that now I no longer feel alone in my loneliness? (laughs) In other words, I'm wondering if there is a real working out or it's just presenting something back to me. And maybe I never recognized it before, and now I can recognize it for the first time. But I don't know one way or the other, but I'm wondering if it is actually cathartic. Well, I think just what you said is true. There's a recognition that I'm lonely, that other people are lonely, and so I'm not lonely alone. And that is a kind of recognition and reversal. Hmm. And that's the process of catharsis, right? What we're not getting, again, is the moral lesson, right? right? Right. To avoid the loneliness. But yeah, I would say I do think that it is cathartic. Yeah. I'm just thinking my first experience of reality TV was, I guess, the real world. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that seems these days to be remarkably quaint and old-fashioned because in a way it was a show like Big Brother or Survivor. It was not a real situation, even though it was called the real world. It was a bunch of people forced to live together in the same house And it really did present the vision we have of ourselves under capitalism as 
individuals who are pursuing our own self-interests, and those are inevitably going to come into conflict with others who have their own self-interests. And I have no interest in coming together in solidarity about anything. (laughs) And by the way, if I can get more TV time, the better for me. And I just heard about this on a podcast today. There's a show called Naked Attraction. Have either of you heard of this? I've actually seen it. It's a lot of genitalia. Yeah, that's what yeah. I've heard. <laughs> I have a funny story about this. Actually, one night I must have fallen asleep with my television on and it advanced to this show, this game show. And when I woke up, it was just like a row of penises like on my television <laughs> you know these men standing in a box like from their waist up they were covered it was just like waist down naked men. i did not know about this <laughs> so anyway but back to your story but i mean when i heard about naked attraction i thought in a way this is just depicting a kind of superficiality that comes along with swipe right swipe left In other Mm -hmm. words, I just look and yes, no, yes, no, just based on how people look. But I don't know if it's helping me work through the culture that has brought us (laughs) to this point at all. And, you know, okay, so then you're looking at an awful lot of genitalia. But Lee, does it become banal after a while? A hundred percent in the first episode, actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know that I would count game shows as reality television. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize it was a game show. Yeah, Um, yeah. I thought it was more like The Bachelor or something, (laughs) except naked. Yeah, picking up on what you said, Lee, I do think you can think about the way The Bachelor does this kind of allegorical distance, right? Because... It's about dating, but no one meets people the way they meet people on The Bachelor. And no one has to contend with these things of like, well, the person's dating a dozen other people at the same time. And I find that difficult. (laughs) Who I'm living with. (laughs) Who I'm living with. But in its own way, it still gives people what they want, which is this worry about like relationships and compatibility, but not in a way that's brought down to the level of mundane where it becomes, in my view, like, when something comes close to the mundane, it becomes anxiety provoking, right? Mm. It becomes mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, what should I be doing? You have to imagine yourself how you would act on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or whatever, right? You can't just think about it in the way that you'd think about a romantic comedy movie where people meet and what would I say to someone if I met them? And so maybe it, it is its own weird kind of allegory. The other thing that drives me nuts about that show is on their dates – they never talk about anything as recognizable date talk. They never just like, hey, have you seen this? Did you like it? You know, what do you think about Mexican food? Blah, blah. It's like, here's my tragedy. What's your tragedy? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just very meta. Yeah. It's just very like, here's yeah. my journey. They never can touch on the sort of mundane small talk that people actually use to get to know each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's almost a kind of theatrics to it, a kind of like a melodrama to it, right? In the sense that they can't speak about mundane stuff. They can only speak in grandiose terms about their journey journey and who they're going to find on their journey. Like they're characters in some poorly written play. I'm, I'm sort of sitting here with my mouth open as Jason goes through a detailed analysis of The Bachelor because I'm just not over the fact that you've watched enough episodes <laughs> to perform this analysis. This is a whole side of Jason that I've never known before. And you know I want to go on this journey with you, Jason. <laughs> 
But I do think that you're right. Obviously, The Bachelor is a compressed and compacted vision of meeting and dating and falling in love. But I do think that there are some real things that, again, are cathartic to watch, you know, watching somebody get their heart broken, Mm. watching somebody feel the flutter of a crush for the first time. You know, I mean, I think those are things that we want to see, but there's no larger lesson to it. Right. Again. I agree. We've been doing a lot of experimentation in the bar lab. And we've determined that philosophy is best served with the whiskey back. Unfortunately, all of that experimentation has run us up a hefty bar tab. You can help us defray the cost of this podcast and keep us independent and ad-free by signing up to be one of our patrons at patreon.com slash hotelbarsessions. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several of them, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you'll find links to support this podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. Now, we know this sounds like begging, but really, no, it's actually just begging. So press pause for a second, go donate to the podcast, and then come back for the rest of the conversation. We'll keep pouring profound thoughts one episode at a time. Jason, we've had a beginning of the podcast. We've had a middle of the podcast. We went on a journey. (laughs) We've been on a journey. I'm holding a rose. (laughs) Do you have an end for us? This is really documenting more than narrating. I don't need to have an end. (laughs) But I guess if I was, first, I do think that we've left lingering the question, do we really need stories? And I do think stories help us make sense of things in a way that documentation do not. And they become contested in a way that documentation does not. You know, to go back to our earlier episode, philosophy in general needs to get back into the cave and think about what kind of stories we can tell that are more useful or beneficial. Because the other thing I think is worth pointing out in terms of this difficulty to narrate the moment, I mean, there's this book by Yves Saint that I love and want people to translate on mythocracy. And he talks a lot about this tendency towards stories focusing on individual actors Mm. and people, which tends towards a kind of right, as he would put it, imaginary. And to tell the stories about COVID, to tell the stories about the 2008 recession, tell stories even about the ongoing war on terror, we need to tell stories that can somehow encompass structural conditions as well and are more than just about people, good or bad people, and more about conditions. And I feel like we need to be able to tell the stories that don't just simplify and allegorize the present, but give us a way to expand to think about what it is that we're living through and how it's more than just good guys and bad guys and good dates and bad dates, to put it in bachelor speak. (laughs) Well, and if I could just briefly tie this up with a point Lee made way at the beginning of our conversation, it's not as if Agamemnon in a tragedy was Agamemnon. But rather, Agamemnon was the characterization of something like a structure. And it's Mm -hmm. precisely because of that that the audience was allowed to work through an issue of civic contestation because Agamemnon wasn't a hero, wasn't a hero as an individual. He was able to characterize an entire structure. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Similarly with Oedipus, you know, a lot of 
undergrads will tell you that the lesson of Oedipus is that you can't escape your fate, but the lesson of Oedipus is how important it is to know yourself. <laughs> you know, and none of us are Oedipus. Hey, before we end, I just want to say something, and I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Emma Bianchi, for pointing this out to me. And I cannot believe that I have not realized this in eight seasons and almost 120 episodes. But she recently pointed out to me that we, every week, sit down at the hotel bar to have this discussion, which I love. And then at the end, we call a cab, which makes no sense because we're in the hotel. <laughs> so, so no more calling cabs. Thank you, Emma, for pointing that out. So if you guys would like to accompany me back to the elevators, I would really appreciate continuing this conversation until we part to our rooms. Good night, y'all. Good night. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you.